From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today, on the season finale of Schmaltzy, Allison Roman. Allison is a New York-based cook, writer, and author of the New York Times best-selling Nothing Fancy and Dining In Cookbooks. She is the creator of a bi-weekly YouTube series called Home Movies, as well as a weekly newsletter titled A Newsletter. Although you may know her best from her viral recipes for the cookies and the stew. We'll hear Allison's story and our conversation afterwards, both recorded live at a schmaltzy salon at Contra Restaurant on the Lower East Side. All right, so I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, um, a child of the 90s and also divorce. And as I became older, my parents obviously developed two very distinct styles of parenting. And I think the more therapy I go to, the more I realize that this has sort of defined my personality of having such a strong foothold in two very different personalities. So thank you, mom and dad. You know, at my mom's, I could stay up late, but my dad's, I could watch TV. My mom allowed me to go to adult cocktail parties, whereas my dad was more like, I could have my friends over for swimming. And it was just two very different lifestyles. My mom, we celebrated Christmas, although I'm not sure why, because we definitely were not Catholic. She, like, married a guy who was really into church, and so we started going to church. So that's when we celebrated Christmas, except for when she was really into crystals, and then we definitely didn't go to church. But at my dad's, we celebrated Hanukkah, and... He has always done his best to sort of remind me that I was half Jewish. And one of my earliest memories in life, I remember being in a laundry room at our first house that we lived in in North Hollywood. And I remember asking, what does half Jewish mean? He's like, well, half of you is Jewish, the the half of you that is me. And I'm like, okay. And I just sort of took that as like, yes, I'm half Jewish. And I realize now that because he was sort of like, fully parenting half of the time, it became really important for him to tell me at least half of where I came from. My lineage, his parents, his sister, how he was raised, and becoming half Jewish became this really exciting thing for me to tell people as a kid. It was sort of like, hi, I'm Allison, I'm half Jewish, and sort of unrelated to really anything. He took his time with me, yeah, very concentrated time, and it was like, okay, well, your grandmother was from here, and here's how this happened, and here's how they met. Here was what it was like growing up in New Jersey, and, you know, here's every drug I've ever done. If you ever want to know about it, question mark, and I was like, is my dad trying to party with me or educate me about LSD and, like, why you shouldn't mix it with other drugs? I still don't really know. But I feel like this was also around the time of, I'm sure this is the case for just most kids ages eight to 13, but like, you're like, who am I? Am I different? Do I like that? Do I want to be the same? And I was firmly in the like, I want to be different camp, but I was the same. So I took sort of anything I could to be like, I'm different. And being half Jewish was that thing. It was around this time that I also started wearing a paper clip around the fronts of my teeth to pretend like I had braces because that also made me feel different. I later got braces. It wasn't as good as I thought it would be. And so as I was telling people this as I was growing up, it was like no one ever questioned it. No one was like, what does half Jewish mean? I was just like, I'm half Jewish. And they're like, that's great. And I'm like, great, this is all great. But the older I got, you know, it's sort of people would be like, well, what do you mean you're half Jewish? And I'm like, well, my dad's Jewish. And it was around this time that people that were 
actually raised Jewish were like, well, is your mom Jewish? And I was like, well, no. And they're like, well, you're not really Jewish. And I sort of was like, well, is the, is the most special thing about me not even true? Like the fact that I'm half Jewish? And then I started to sort of spiral remembering that my grandmother, who was Irish Catholic, converted so she could marry my grandfather, who was from Eastern Europe, to like marry him and then have kids. I was like, well, then is my dad even Jewish? Like, is the only Jewish part of me not even Jewish? And it's sort of like, you know, my world started crumbling, which was a lot to handle for somebody whose only other concern was like, does Daniel Martin like me back? And so this was like deeply embarrassing for me. And this was again at a time where like your whole life is embarrassing, everything is embarrassing. Someone, I remember, <laughs> I don't know why this particular memory sticks out, but I remember being around this group of hot eighth graders and they were like talking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I was like, I love that band. And they're like, oh yeah, name one of their songs. And I was like, disguise. <laughs> like I, I did not know a song. Super embarrassing, and to be clear, this was when I was in sixth grade. This is not like a recent story. <laughs> but I didn't know how to defend myself against the people that were sort of like, you're not even Jewish. And then I was going to Jewish day camp. It wasn't even sleepaway. And like that was a whole other mess of things. And I didn't know anything really about the culture. Like we did celebrate Hanukkah, and we, I remember, you know, we did like Passover four times maybe, but because it was like, you know, I was splitting holidays with my parents. Our schedule was always changing. Like, there was no ritual. There was no, like, rhythmic sense of, like, what a holiday meant or a religion meant. It was just, like, I knew I was half Jewish. And then it sort of, like, became less important for me to tell people that because I was also in high school and who does that? Um, so, okay. So in 2010, I moved to New York from California. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I made it. <laughs> um, I was supposed to move here for three months. I ended up staying for a small eternity. Um, and every person I became friends with, um, I, I was in the restaurant industry, and I moved to New York to get out of the restaurant industry into something more like restaurant-y, like restaurant-adjacent, but not. Um, but I was working uh, for a time at a bakery. Hello, Zoe. Zoe and I work together. Um, and everyone I met, this is funny that you're here, actually, but everyone I met was either, like, all of my friends in New York, like, every single person that I met was either from Texas or Jewish. <laughs> Zoe, you're actually both. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you. But yeah, I was like, wow, it's so interesting. And, like, not, like, casually Jewish, as I would ascribe myself, but, like, deeply Jewish in that, like, they had families here that were like East Coast Jewish communities and I started getting invited to Seder's and Rosh Hashanah's and you know going to the Upper West Side a lot for like a bris and like I don't know it was sort of like the community that I found myself in as I got older there were more weddings and I know every way to build a chuppah that you can and finally at the age of 36 I got invited to a bar mitzvah and I can tell you that it was fucking awesome and highly recommend I was myself was never bought mitzvahed, but man, do I wish that I had been, but youth is wasting on the young, and I don't think they even appreciate it. <laughs> and at these dinners and these events and these gatherings, I sort of became, it was like, didn't even occur to me to like feel Jewish at all because I was so un-Jewish, like in the context. I had didn't know a single prayer, didn't know a single song, because there's always like the people, it's sort of like at karaoke, where they're like, don't make me sing. So I don't sing. And then like they get up there and they fucking are awesome. And you're like, you absolutely sing. That's how I felt at every Seder, where it was like, I don't even remember the prayers. And then they are like reading the full prayers, like, like they memorized it before the night before, which maybe they did. 
Um, anyway, I do sing a great day in you, if anybody is interested in having me at their next Seder. But I sort of was like chalked it up to my my upbringing. I was like, well, it was the casualness, casualness in which I was raised where like, people were like, well, what's like the most Jewish part about you? And it was not like a question that I asked about myself often, but um, it, it started to fade from me. Like it would come up, you know, at these things, it would be like, I still fit into my bat mitzvah dress. It was from Betsy Johnson. And I was like, I don't even know what that sentence means. By the way, it was Lily. So, and, and like, you know, oh, you grew up in the, this neighborhood. Like, did your family go to this temple? And I'm like, my family didn't even go to temple. And I don't know. It just started like the color drained from like any sort of sense that I had that I like that was a part of me. Except for when people would talk about the food. And this was sort of like people would say like something, something matzo ball soup. And I'd be like, I'm half Jewish. You know, and like, oh, like, do you even think the Russian daughter's weight is worth it? And like, did you know that my dad's Jewish, so I'm half Jewish too? Like, it became very, very important for me to like let people know this all the time, um, especially when we went to Veselka, because I was like, I used to think I was Russian, but I'm actually Ukrainian. Do you want to go to Veselka with me? And it, it became like the thing that I could latch onto, like the only thing that I could actually viably connect to because I had sort of like dedicated my life to cooking food and eating it and experiencing it from like, a professional and very like hedonistic joyful perspective and I felt like okay well this is the the connective tissue and it, I didn't like think that in any sort of real earnest way it was more just like oh this is the one thing I know that I can actually talk about I have no idea what a Torah is but I do know that in order to make a great matzo ball you should really grind the boards by hand and like definitely use schmaltz and club soda is a myth but I use it anyway and so that became the thing. And it was around this time that I, I definitely, in my time in New York, as I'm sure this may or may not happen to some of us, but like really drifted away from my family. I started going back to L.A. less. Um, when I was in L.A., I would stay in a hotel because it was for work. And even though my dad was always like, you always have a room here. And I'm like, the valley is like 45 minutes from my meeting and I'm not trying to wait in that traffic. And that, you know, I didn't want to do that. So it just became like, if you come from a place where there's already not that great of a foundational sense of family, moving away can make that a lot harder or a lot worse. And for me, it definitely did. I sort of prided myself on being a very independent person and I don't need anyone, I don't need anything. And depending on how your parents split up, if they've split up, it's like a direct reaction to like being tossed around and being like, well, I'm kind of on my own at all times, even if I'm with somebody half the time. And so being in New York, being away from my family in California made this a lot worse. It really exacerbated like every single rift. And the story that I would tell myself is that like, I'm not that close with my family. And like, I'm just not that close with my family. And it didn't bother me so much as if it sort of in my youth felt like a point of pride. And I, I don't know why, but it was like, oh, I'm not that close with my family as in like, but look at me, I'm still successful or I've like made it somehow. And I'm not that close. With, I don't know. It, it's... Again, working through that with my therapist. She says it's part of my neuroses, which everyone has. And so it became like this weird self-fulfilling prophecy where it was sort of like a move to New York. You become independent. You become more independent. You get more friends. You get busier. You stop calling less. Like my dad, towards the end of his dad's life, like they talked on the phone every single day, like on my way on the way home from my dad working. And so he tried to do that with me. He's like, well, after grandpa died, he's like, I remember how important it is for like us to keep talking. And I just was like always too busy. I was like, oh, you know, three hours ahead, or I was at dinner, or I was at an event, or I was at a thing, or I was, you know, I just like didn't 
want to dive into the like the banalities or embarrassments of like being a 20 30 something living in New York of like every single minute detail it felt like so much work to open up at that stage and so it just got worse and worse and worse and we just like stopped being as close this is where I started crying I'm also gonna get my period any day now so <laughs> I feel like I'm really ripe for emotion um no no, no such thing as TMI at a schmaltzy so <laughs> I feel like this didn't really affect me, except around the holidays or around his birthday, where I'd be like, what do I get my dad? I feel like I barely know him. And then it was like, does he even know me? Like, do I even know me? It was like, anyway, very existential every time. But I, I think, like, the thing that I could connect to is like, oh, well, like, my dad loves the deli. And if you asked him today even, like, what's your favorite thing in the world? He'd be like, pastrami. I mean, my kids. I love my kids. He's, like, very heavy into pastrami. But he, so I would, I would sort of like start getting him shirts for like every holiday, birthday, occasion, whatever. And we call it merch now, not just a shirt, but it's, it's merch. But I would, you know, Russ and Daughters, Katz's, Barney Greengrass, Shelsky's, like any sort of slogan shirt. And this sort of started to extend if I would travel to a different city that had a deli, I would get him the thing from there. And when I ran out of shirts, I started physically gifting him like hunks of pastrami or like sides of salmon. And when I ran out of New York places, I started gifting him like smoked fish from Wisconsin and like just really sort of seeking out any sort of like smoked cured meat, fish, anything. It was like the thing that I knew he would connect to. And it was sort of like the thing that like I think he appreciated in me because he knew that I cared so much about food. I don't know. It was like, we don't, we've never talked about this. God forbid he listened to this podcast and then we have to like discuss this. I think that without talking about it, it was sort of an acknowledged like olive branch moment. We're meeting each other at our levels. Like I see you. I know you, you love this thing. I see you. I know how important this is to you. And it would, it was sort of like how I imagined two men talking um, where it's like, good pastrami and it's like great pastrami it's like not too salty you're like no good amount of spice I like the peppercorn and like just like describing things back and forth forever um, without any emotion um, and sort of like the deeper I got into this I, I was just like well I'm not gonna tell him that I'm gonna freeze my eggs or like what dating is like or any of these like other things that I sort of like reserve for either myself or my friends but I can I can talk to him about like this amazing like smoked meat that I had in Austin or like ask him why my matzo bra is always drier than his and so that was sort of the full circle moment for me of of being like oh I can connect to my dad through this way which has always it's been really tough it's been like tougher to even admit that we're not close because there's like I barely speak to my mom and there's like a outward facing sort of illusion that like my dad and I are best friends or something people are like Dan Roman he seems amazing and I'm like he is amazing but like we don't actually talk that much and we aren't actually that close but it's getting better and it gets better all the time the more I've been able to incorporate him into my work the more he sort of responds to that and it's like very call and response where if I write about him and he reads it he feels so good that then he like is moved to go out and buy four bronzino grill them for his friends and take a picture for me. And that's like huge. Like that's like not something that would have happened before. Um, so it feels, it feels great. It's like, you know, for growing up, he would take me to the deli, to Solly's, no longer in existence, San Fernando Valley, represent that one. And that was my childcare. Like my grandpa was holding court at a table and like 
that's where he brought me. Like that was my daycare. He, from like the youngest memory I have of him, he's like, even if it's four hours to get there, we will go to Langer's and we will get that pastrami. And if anyone tries to tell you that other pastrami is good, you tell them that they've never been to Langer's. And you're like, okay, that was not fun moving to New York. Um, and eventually sort of like as I, you know, it, for my first cookbook, it was like, I, I wrote about my dad making gravlocks, but that was like a pretty recent tradition. That wasn't like the thing that I grew up with. It wasn't like childhood in that way, but it was the more I got into food, the more he became able to express himself through food. And then he started making his own gravlocks, which we love. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, me moving to New York actually brought me like the relationship that I had always craved with my dad. And it's, when they asked me to do this story, I was like, I feel so one dimensional because I feel like every story worth telling like truly is like related to food. And I, I'm like, oh God, like how predictable, but it, I, it just is. And I, I think it's like a thing that I have learned to communicate to him. Like I, I'm no longer waiting for him to parent me like through food. I feel like I'm, I don't know. It feels like I'm like learning to be his daughter through food and it feels silly but like it is our common ground and I feel really grateful to have that and it it even makes him want to come visit me in New York so for that I'm very grateful and that's my story <laughs> Thank you once again for sharing your story. Thanks for having me. This is like my first thing that I've done in public in uh, 28 months. So I feel like extremely weird about it. It's like, yes, you live in the world. <laughs> Congratulations for everybody for leaving the house is all I'm saying. <laughs> Do you remember when in the very beginning of the pandemic, we made matzo bread on Instagram live? Yes, I do, because it was around Passover. It was like early April. We didn't know what we were doing. We were washing our groceries. And I was like, what about making the matzo bread on Instagram Live? And you were like, yes. I was like, something, anything. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. How did that part of the pandemic, like the very beginning, feel for you? Like, where were you? What was the early days like? Well, Amanda, it felt terrible. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I think it felt weird for everyone. Like, I was um, supposed to go to Australia for a book tour and it was like we were gonna leave the week everything shut down in New York and I remember the people in Australia were like it's fine just come and I was like I don't think so guys like it seems pretty bad and then Tom Hanks got COVID in Australia and they're like shut it down everybody cancel it was like protect Tom Hanks at all costs like that's the only, that was the moment where people really started taking it seriously. But I had rented out my apartment, or not rented it, but I arranged for a friend to stay there because their house was being renovated and they're like, we need a place to stay for a few weeks and we can't stay with my mom because she's immunocompromised. And I was like, well, perfect. I'm going to be in Australia for three weeks. Take my place. So I had let them basically move in. But then I was like, well, then I don't have a place to go. So then I moved in with my friends in Hudson for three weeks, which turned into nine weeks. I don't know. It was like third wheeling every day. It was like we made each other martinis every day at five and <laughs> went on our silly little walks. And it was kind of nice. I don't know. <laughs> Glad that was your experience. I mean, it was fucking awful, Amanda. Yeah. But like, listen, we're trying to, in retrospect, be like, it wasn't that bad, right? I don't know. It's whatever it I, takes. Can't even remember what that was like. We were dancing on Zoom, for Christ's sake. Like, it was dark. 
since I grew up here. Tell us a little bit about like what was the Jewish community like on the West Coast versus the East Coast? I don't know. I feel like in growing up in LA, like I didn't really know what anyone was. I didn't know if you were Jewish or Catholic or Muslim or anything. It was sort of like everybody kind of coexisted at every grade of school that I attended. And it was very like mixed with like very different types of people from different families. Like it wasn't homogenous. So that wasn't why I didn't ask. I think it was like, I didn't ask because nobody talked about it. It wasn't like a part of anybody's cultural identity in the same way that I feel like it can be on the East Coast. In the same way that like we don't summer, you know? Like yeah. we just like <laughs> exist in California. And I don't know, it just was culturally very different. And there were delis where I grew up, but if you're from New York and you're like, oh, that's your deli, I'm sure they're like, that's not a deli. You're like, that was, that was built in 72. Like this deli was born in the 1800s. No, I don't think they're that old. But I think the point being is just like the cultural there is just generally much younger. If my grandparents are any indication of how a lot of people settled there, I'm saying that like we're in the Oregon Trail. This was like in the 60s. But... My, so my grandpa grew up in the Soviet Union, which is now Ukraine, and they immigrated. And if you looked at him, you would never guess was Jewish. He's like, he looks like Grecian almost. He's like, just, he's no longer with us. But, and my grandmother, same thing from Ireland or in parts of Wales, like her family went over here. And they raised my dad and his sister in New Jersey. And when my dad was like 14, they're like, we're moving to California. And they shed any former self of that, like zero identity from where they came from. And they're like, we're Californian now. And that became their whole identity. And like lots of gold chain, open shirts, my grandma style icon, caftans, hats. Like they both looked incredible all of the time, like a slim Aaron's photo, like walking. And it was like not important for them to ever say where they came from. And I'm sure a lot of that also has to do with like generational trauma and like not wanting to relive certain parts of your life that were less savory than like living in the Valley of California in the 60s. But you know, it just, I feel like it's different in California. It's like people don't talk about where they're from almost. I don't know if anyone else experiences that in California, but it just feels like there's less of a emphasis on your identity. You can be anything there. There's an air of like reinventing yourself, going mm-hmm. to Hollywood, yeah. you know, like you can be someone else. Yeah, for sure. Why do you think they did that? Or was there something like in particular that happened or they just wanted to change? I don't know. I think that like they both came from very little money and then my grandpa started working he was like a watch salesman for like a bougie watch company and they're like we want you to be the regional sales manager in los angeles and he's like los angeles and my grandma's like we're moving to los angeles and made him buy her a mink coat that i now own because she wore it zero times in california i've also worn it zero times because it's a mink coat i'm like what am i doing with that but it's a nice heirloom but I think that there's like a, an element of reinvention, especially if you are like, oh, there's a promise of like me being a different person. Of like the, my grandma worked at Saks as like a counter girl selling makeup and perfume. And I just imagine that there was like an element of a fresh start for them of starting over as, as like different people. You did the same thing in a way, coming to New York, coming yeah. back to the East Coast. What was the very early days? Like you didn't want to call Dan and tell him what was going on here. So what was going on? Well... I didn't want to, yeah, I mean, listen, there's a lot of things I'm never going to tell anybody about when I moved to New York, but I, I think it was like, because I sort of did it in this really defiant way where I was going to move to New York, even though I didn't know anyone, and even though I didn't have a job, and even though I had zero dollars, and was like, I can never complain, 
and I never felt like I could reach out. I never felt like I could share the struggles because it was my choice to like suffer this way. It was like, I could have stayed in California. I could have gone to college. I could have done a lot of different things that I decided not to. And I felt like by in that sort of like active personal defiance, it became really difficult for me to reach out and be like, today was really hard because I felt like I didn't deserve that because I had chosen it. You know, it just became this picture that I had in my head of like parentless girl like lives in New York on her own and like doesn't need anyone. And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. It was just like the thing that that I hammered into like my way of being and I was going to figure it out and I was never going to ask for help. And that included like telling my family if I was having a tough time. You made it. Yeah, I made it somewhere. <laughs> I made it here tonight with all of you. I, I feel like that has been sort of the through line in my career. I feel like it, that's just the way it was supposed to happen. Cool. So you came to New York and then you started getting invited more to like holiday dinners. And then it seemed like that really took hold for you. Yeah, I remember I lived in San Francisco for a few years before New York and I was living there at the time with a, a lot of friends. One of my best friends from kindergarten basically lived down the street for me. And it was like around the time we started like having dinner parties for the first time in our early 20s. And then we would start doing what we would call Eastover, which was like Easter and Passover. And it wasn't like, I don't know, someone came up with that name. It's not that clever. Um, it's just <laughs> two words put together. But that was sort of like, oh, these were like dinners of 12 to 18 people. And we'd have ham and lamb and we'd have matzo soup and like carrots or something, whatever you eat for Easter. I don't know. Carrots. And so I had like known about Passover because I mentioned I celebrated it occasionally growing up but when I moved to New York and then started going to actual seders and it was like okay you like there's a ritual there's a reason it felt like I really attached myself to that I'm like a big ritual person I like a thing that you do every year always and so seeing the way that other families did that it also sort of made me feel like more anchored to something in New York I cooked a bunch of stuff from your Passover menu. Oh, it was you. really fun. Yeah, it's my favorite holiday now, like as an adult. And it feels weird to like grow into a holiday, but I feel like it has the best food. I also really love menu meals where it's like everything is anchored around one thing, but it's like pre-spring and it's like still kind of cold enough to want brisket, but like, I don't know, carrots again? Carrots anyone? I don't know. I don't even <laughs> like carrots. Um, but like, <laughs> it's like a nice ritual that feels... Like, it's also not totally commodified in the way that other holidays are. Well, your recipes and cooking have such, like, a distinct style. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Jewish Food Society, we're building this archive of family recipes. We have Allison's matzah brai, of course, and Allison and Dan's on our archive. And and our process is we interview the family. Every family gets, like, a narrative essay about their history. Hey, you talked to my dad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We talked to Dan. Yeah, he loves it. (laughs) They love to talk to us when you get them going. He's like a friendlier Larry David. Like, if you have to imagine what he's like, he's, like, less curmudgeonly, but, like, occasionally, like, the defining trait of him growing up is, like, if the Dodgers or Clippers or Lakers were losing so badly, he would have to physically leave the house because he was so anxious. And he would, like, not be able to handle that. And couldn't believe it. Had to, like, sometimes he would get in the car and drive away and we'd be like where'd dad go and they're like the lakers are losing yeah for all of the recipes we love to like channel the family and then create like photos inspired by the family but also with kind of you know our own spin that we call grandma chic 
So when we got our team together and we're like, you know, wanting to to shoot some of your recipes, it was a huge challenge because it's you're ugly. actually the opposite. Uh, because you're not at all. The recipe is not a cute No, dish. because there's something so distinct and so really noteworthy about your style, how you present your food, the aesthetic, but also just how you compose it. So how do you define your style? God, um, I still don't know how to answer that question. I should probably figure that out at some point. But I think that for me, the longer I am in this, doing what I do and like asking myself that question, the more I think about like, I don't know, the overcomplication is like something I become less and less interested in all the time. And I think food inherently is so beautiful and it's like raw naked state that you don't really have to do much to it. And every time I ask myself, is this boring? I think I become more comfortable with answering that yes. And and being like, well, it's not boring. It's just simple. And that's really beautiful. It's the best version of something. And if that's the simplest or like the least fussy, that feels really good to me. And I don't know. I I hate to use the word fun, but I do <laughs> love the word fun, which I feel like I also got from my grandma who exclusively uses that word to describe literally everything. That's fun. That's a fun jumpsuit. Like... I love your skirt. That's fun. She's like, do you like the set? It's so fun. Like everything is fun. And I'm like, you know what? It is fun. And we don't celebrate that enough. And I think like, I don't know, like a lack of seriousness, but also very specific. <laughs> Again, I'm a person of duality. So I don't know. I feel like it's a lot of contradictory terms. If I were to do a brainstorm exercise right now, it would be like two opposing words at every turn. We'll save that for next time. Yeah. But I'd love to do that. Someone told me it was because of my Libra rising. Hmm. How do you know when a recipe is done? Yeah, I I test a lot of things by myself because I work during work hours and I'm alone in my apartment. But oftentimes, I don't know, when I'm cooking for other people, I judge their reaction. I never think anything I'm serving is bad, but you definitely know when something's great. And I feel like you're kind of always hoping for that reaction from either the people you're serving or from yourself. And I know when something's not that good. Right. Like we all do. We all know when we're at a restaurant or in our own kitchen or someone's house or something and you're like, yeah, I'm going to eat that. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's also a difference between that and being like, oh my God, that is so good. And I cannot stop eating it. And you're like, wow, like those bits and that and those bits. And like that bite is somehow even better than that bite because of this little saucy moment. Like, I don't know. It's like when you are visibly excited about something, whether it's something you made yourself or something that's been served to you, you know, the difference between that and like pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like one of the cool things about your recipes is that so many people cook them. Yeah. And that's, pretty amazing it's really nice yeah it's the internet has been has turned out to be like amazing PR for recipes because I have to do very little like it's like if they work and people like them they share them and then they tell someone else to make them and that's to me like you can't hire someone to do that for you and it's like a movie it's like if you love a movie you're going to talk about it or a show or or anything and I think that if you love a recipe because it works and it tastes good and it made you feel good for making it people were happy when they ate it you're going to talk about it with people that also want those types of recipes in their life. So when something doesn't get talked about, I'm not like, oh, that's bad. I'm just like, I mean, they can't all be winners. Um, But it makes me feel really good when there's like an alignment of what I think is delicious and what you think is delicious. Yeah. You have two cookbooks and Mm -hmm. you have another one coming out. Yeah, next year. Okay, don't worry. (laughs) No rush. In 40 years, I'm finishing it right now. It's a dessert book, which is really Mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah. It feels very different than the other two mostly because it's all desserts. And I am not actually, I, I was a pastry chef for many years, but I'm not like, I, I would consider myself like not actually that great anymore at making desserts because it's like not my vibe. 
I, I'm like very decidedly a savory person, but it's been a great exercise and challenge of being like, well, what are the most important desserts to me? And it turns out I hate cookies. I don't know. I can't explain it. I'm like, you know what? These aren't, these aren't it for me. But there's a lot of other desserts that I do love. <laughs> I don't hate cookies. It's more just like, I think shortbread are amazing. And then I think all other cookies are just okay. Gotcha. <laughs> it's, it's not even a hot take. It's just like an opinion that I have that I know is unpopular. Like, it's just, but that's okay. I feel like that is, it doesn't need to be politicized. It's like, it, I just am not that into cookies. But I think it's more because I am into cake and I am into like creamy things and like pudding. It's just cool. a book about pudding, actually. <laughs> 95 pudding. recipes of pudding. <laughs> Heard it here first. It's a yeah. pudding book. <laughs> okay, we have one last question. What's your favorite thing to cook at home, and what's your favorite thing to have out? My favorite thing to have out is something that I would, is, is anything that I would never cook myself. I'm not going to deep fry at home, so fried things are delicious. I don't know. When I'm at home, I'm often, like, really, it's like, who am I cooking for? I rarely cook for myself if it's just me. It, the stuff that I make for just myself is like not anything that needs to be said in a microphone. Like okay. it's like tuna. It's like yeah, it's a lot of tuna salad. <laughs> it's a lot of pantry pastas. It's a lot of like pickles from a jar. I have three types of pickles in my fridge right now. Um, doesn't count as dinner, but I love soup. Oh. <laughs> we could talk or not talk for hours. Um, but it's I I don't know. I I think it's like. I eat a lot of popcorn. It's, it's sort of like, I, I think if you ask most food professionals, quote unquote, what they eat alone, it's going to be like a similar roster of answers because so much of my waking time of like the work hours, if I'm like developing recipes for something, it, it is work and I eat it and I'm happy that it is my job, but it's, I'm not like after a day of testing six recipes being like, ah, now what's for me? Like I'm going to eat those things or, you know, if I'm having people over, it's, I'm sort of like, what do you feel like fish or, or vegetables or like? I don't know. I just bought some hot dogs. Can't wait to grill them up. It's going to be great. I love hot dogs. <laughs> I love hot dogs. Good night. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> You've declared your love for hot yeah. dogs and nothing can top that. So yeah. I think we're good. Great. Okay. Okay. Thank, Thank you so much you for having so me. Much. This was wonderful. That was Allison Roman. Thank you for listening. Be sure to head to jewishfoodsociety.org for more on Allison's family story and recipes on our digital archive. Schmalti is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get this show, so you don't miss any of the stories. Schmalti is produced and edited by Gal Shaya and Particle 3. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. This episode was recorded live by Daniel Block. I'm your host, Amanda Dell.